1: Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Amy Fox. She's a lecturer in Defense Studies in King's College, London. And today we'll be speaking about her book, Learning to Fight, Military Innovation and Change in the British Army, 1914-1918. to Welcome, uh, Professor Fox.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Charles. It's great to be here.
1: Uh, Professor Fox, what is the thesis of your book?
0: So what my book seeks to argue and to show um, is how a complex organisation like the British Army sought to deal with the challenges of modern warfare, not just on the Western Front in the First World War, but also in its other theatres of operation. So it's really getting to the heart of how organizations try and learn, try and manage change, which of course has resonance with military organizations today.
1: I noticed that you work with uh, Professor Jonathan Boff on your dissertation. How was it working with such a well-known historian in this area?
0: Yeah, obviously it was a, it was a great privilege. Um, he's written widely on British and German experiences of the First World War, particularly how the German army adapts and learns. So it was a a great opportunity to work with someone who's done a lot of comparative research in this area. Um, And I think that we probably learned a lot from each other during this experience, particularly, you know, looking at things like the impact of civilian expertise on military. So it was a great experience.
1: Now, in the introduction to the book, you cast doubt on the so-called learning curve thesis of British military performance in the Great War. Why Why so?
0: I don't think I say much cast doubt on it. I think that um, it has been understood by some to be um, a little bit overly simplistic, that it's a case of continuous improvement, which for me suggests a kind of Whiggish interpretation of, of history and progress. Um, there are many respected historians in this field, Gary Sheffield, for example, um, who's referred to the learning curve as a process. And really, that's where I think my work kind of takes uh, the conversation forward, is looking at it as a process, but trying to problematize that. So not just focusing on the battlefield tactics and operations, but actually trying to understand learning in a much more holistic sense. So looking at the learning that happens between allies, for example, looking at the learning and the lessons that are taken from the civilian world and brought into the military world. So I don't so much cast doubt on um, the learning curve, but really trying to, to expand that um, and challenge that concept in, in different ways.
1: So in essence, making it less a reductionist conceptual framework.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and really, that's where my kind of networked view of of learning really comes into play there. It probably wouldn't have been developed without a lot of the research and scholarship that's been written under the auspices of the learning curve. But it's just trying to bring different insights and use different methodological lenses to just expand on that concept a little bit further.
1: How would you characterize the pre-Great War British Army especially as per questions of innovation and reform?
0: So I think the, the British Army pre-First World War, um, it suffers from, um, I suppose, not so much a bad reputation, but a, a rather sort of uneven one. So this feeling that actually it's incredibly effective at low-level adaptation because of its experiences in um, colonial campaigning and putting down colonial insurgencies, but that the experience of the Boer War throws up a a lot of challenges that the army actually has to deal with head on. So it goes through a period of of soul searching and reform. But I think to understand the British army and its experiences before the First World War, we need to understand the nature of its officer corps, the nature of its geostrategic mission and the challenges of actually having to try and um, police a, a global empire.
1: Uh, would it be correct to say that uh, your um, one of your arguments in the book is that, per contra to the views of some historians, uh, you characterize the leadership of the British Army as not being made up of, um, for lack of a better expression, Colonel Blimps, and that per se he was not opposed to innovation and new tactical concepts?
0: Yeah, I think that's a fair characterization. I mean, I think that there are certainly individuals in the British Army, as there are in other militaries even of today, in other walks of life, that are out of their depth, that have perhaps been promoted above their their competence and their their experience. But I think broadly speaking, you know, these are individuals who are trying to find ways of shortening this conflict, um, and unfortunately, that leads to a number of failures. And I think that where particularly. I, I, what I think is particularly interesting about looking at British military, senior military figures in this way is that it forces us to reintegrate failure back into our understanding of learning and innovation. You know, innovation in itself is very much characterized by failure rather than success. But of course, when you're fighting a total war, failure is is incredibly costly, um, not just in terms of, of treasure, but also in the blood that is spilt to try and, and, and bring an end to the conflict.
1: Overall, how would you characterize the army's ethos on the eve of the Great War?
0: So I think the British army's um, ethos uh, in this period, so on the eve of the war, is is one that is very much governed by flexibility. Now, that's not necessarily something we would characterise the British Army or indeed many military organisations as being. But for me, it's flexibility that's born out of necessity. Um, As I said, you know, it's required to deploy troops around the world. They face a number of different um, adversaries across different terrain. Um, so not one set of principles or tactics will suit every situation. So this is a flexibility that is deeply ingrained. And we can see that when we look at you new know, instances um, in, in written doctrine from the time, such as field service regulations, which very much uh, captures that that flexibility and how the British Army sees itself. But I think that you know, we look at the officer corps, as well as, you know, the, the broader geostrategic mission to have um, these aspects being fixed or somehow immovable, I think um, sets the British Army up to fail. So it's flexible, but that is not without its challenges. It's not without its drawbacks. And I think we see some of the limitations of that flexible, more pragmatic approach, particularly in the, the first half of the First World War.
1: What is liberal learning and how does it compare to horizontal, vertical and external forms of learning?
0: So liberal learning, um, for me, it was a way of trying to capture the um, those kind of fleeting occurrences. You know, the conversations that happen between individuals that enable bottom up adaptation effectively. So the conversations you might have with a colleague in, a, in our context, maybe over a coffee, um, those kind of instances that that can't be documented, that are much more fleeting and um, ephemeral. And so I see that as being, you know, one of the foundations, really, of how the British Army learns is that it harnesses the social element of the organisation um, and ties that into how it approaches learning and innovation. Now, how that's different to horizontal is more I suppose a matter of scale so when i think of horizontal learning as i talk about in my book this is about reliefs in the front line the passing on of local knowledge between formations and dr robert foley has has written really convincingly on this about the german army in the first world war and i think we see similar things at play in the british army now what i was trying to do by trying to to codify or think about learning in this kind of more networked way was to show that liberal approaches to learning can tie into horizontal approaches and they can tie into external approaches as well. So really, it's a kind of hybrid view um, of learning.
1: (coughs) Explain how connections and patronage networks worked in terms of the army's learning capabilities.
0: So I think that um, patronage or we might refer to them as social relations are absolutely fundamental to how the British army operates and also how it learns. So when we think about patronage, we generally see this as being incredibly negative. <coughs> um, sorry, we, we think about patronage in, in quite a negative way. I think that patronage is very much the kind of um, the grease that enables the the wheels of the organisation to keep turning. Um, And I think I would stress that the social relations that exist in the British Army, particularly in terms of appointments and promotions, that this is largely underpinned by at least perceptions of merit. So individuals are put into positions where they have proven experience or proven competence in, in other appointments and are therefore put into positions where it's best felt that their skill set aligns with with the requirements for that particular position. And I think because the British Army, like all organisations, is made up of individuals, that we actually really need to pay attention and foreground those social relations in how we understand organisations like the military. And it's absolutely no different in the military today. Relationships between individuals are incredibly important whether that's circumventing unwieldy parts of the chain of command, cutting through red tape and bureaucracy. I think that we overlook the highly socialized nature of these organizations at our peril.
1: How do the army's learning culture differ, if at all, from what it was in the Great War, as opposed to the Boer War?
0: I think that its learning culture doesn't necessarily differ. I think the scale of the task Differs, and I think the element that um, we need to factor into all of this um, is, is twofold, really. Is the fact that the British Army in the Boer War is primarily a, a professional force. The British Army in the First World War starts off as a professional force, drawing on reservists, but then becomes increasingly civilian in um, in composition the closer we get to the end of the conflict. And I think that that requires the British Army as an institution, particularly its senior leadership, to think of different ways of of packaging lessons and information in order to make that more accessible um, for civilian citizen soldiers. Um, The second point I think in terms of 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 how they they differ is is again comes back to to the scale and that's the scale of um, information and experience, um, only a, a fraction of the documentation, official paperwork that exists on the British Army's experience in the First World War remains and has been kept in the National Archives. And that is an inc- a considerable amount. So I think what we're dealing with here is is an army that doesn't necessarily have a really formalised lessons learned process is having to wade through considerable amounts of information and is trying to deduce lessons and best practice that it can take forward. And I think, you know, just something as simple as the advent of the typewriter actually creates a number of problems for the British Army in terms of the amount of information and knowledge that it has to work through um, in order to to really try and codify best practice to be embodied in in pamphlets and doctrine.
1: How exactly was inter-theatre learning disseminated in the British Army, and was it as, as functional as other forms of learning?
0: So inter theater learning is a, is, a, is a really interesting area. It was initially um, what got me started um, on my, my doctoral research is I think that it's something that, that gets overlooked. I think we think about the British Army in the First World War as, as largely confined to the Western Front, but actually over a third of the Army's formations serve in another theatre. So I think by widening our aperture and actually considering the British Army's relationship between theatres um, gives us a really interesting insight into how it, it learns and innovates as an organisation. One of the, the real challenges, of course, in, in sharing um, lessons and best practice between theatres is the question of relevance. You know, something that is Um, relevant on the Western Front might not necessarily be as relevant in theatres such as Salonika, Italy or Palestine. And there's a really great example of the latest um, iteration of of Platine Tactics, a pamphlet that's issued in 1917 being sent out to Palestine. And the higher command there and divisional commanders looking at this and thinking that having a section of rifle grenadiers is not particularly useful when your enemy or your adversary is at greater distance. So there are attempts there to adapt, and in some cases, actually reject some of the, um, you know, the best that's coming out of the Western Front in favour of more local solutions to local problems. And I think that is very much in keeping with the British Army's approach to learning um, culturally and historically is that it tends to prioritise those kind of pragmatic local solutions that are based in theatre. And so you don't necessarily see as much um, best practice and learning coming from what are perhaps pejoratively known as the sideshow theatres actually coming back to the western front in in any near the scale in which western front lessons are going out to those theatres but this into learning takes place in a number of ways you know it's through publications um it's through it's through conferences and training schools but again importantly it's through individuals and there is a, a an increased number of individuals that are moving between these theatres. And so when we think about learning, it's an inherently mobile um, process and practice. And again, that's why looking at these individuals, their experiences and their context, what they're bringing with them, um, is just a really, really rich uh, seam of um, evidence and, and research, I think.
1: Why in that case was learning from the French more productive on the individual level as opposed to the institutional level?
0: So I I think there are um, a lot of different reasons uh, for this. I think that um, because actually fundamentally building up relationships with individuals, building up individual trust is often um, the first step to to being able to share that best practice. Um, I think that institutionally there were definitely attempts to share publications and pamphlets between um, the two allies. There are also um, uh, inter-allied training schools, and you see this quite significantly um, in the Italian theatre. So there are venues and sites for that interallied exchange of learning to happen. But I think much of the time it's proximity in the front line that is, is really important. Or it's, again, pre-existing relationships, particularly amongst the scientific community, um, between britain and france that, that really bear fruit during the first world war so i wouldn't necessarily say that there was an institutional um, aversion to learning from each other but i think that at those lower levels where you can build those personal relationships that, that that is absolutely fundamental and that that can escalate its way up to the institutional level but those social relations again i think are incredibly important when we think about inter learning
1: How much, if at all, was the British Army able to learn from the French in the area of tactics as opposed to the areas of science and technology?
0: So that's a a really interesting question. Um, I think that tactically the British learn a a good deal from the French. And, you know, in the book I suggest that actually – British attempts to try and learn from French experiences, like looking, it's for them, it's like looking into a mirror. It's holding up a mirror to their own experiences. And some British officers in particular don't quite like what they see. You know, they, they don't like to reflect back on the perhaps mistakes or the failures that have happened in previous operations. Um, but there's something really interesting about um, the cultural predilections or the cultural differences when it comes to learning between the British and, and French forces. Um, but I think actually in many respects certain British officers, you know, really lean in to the opportunity to go and spend time at French training schools, to spend time going around um, French areas of operations, um, because it gives them that insight to to really challenge um their status quo, what 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 they take for granted. In terms of the scientific areas, you know you certainly see particularly um where where signals are concerned, for example, there is certainly a, attempts to to learn and and develop technology um together also independently but I think in that in that tactical area, you almost have kind of two um, learning processes going on at the same time, and I think that they intersect at various points um which, which re- is really fascinating um, and tells us a lot, I think, about um, those different cultures and some of the frictions, but also some of the baggage um, that comes with trying to learn um, from an ally um, in major combat operations.
1: How do you account for the success of Australian forces on the Western Front, given their lack of trained and experienced officers?
0: So yeah, that's a really interesting question. And it ties into um, you know, our ideas, at least within the historical world, our, our perceptions of of the Australian forces in particular as as being um really at the cutting edge of of combat effectiveness. You know, I think it's interesting that when we think about the British Army, um, the the Dominions as they were referred to at the time. Um, particularly the Australians and Canadians, you know, their their formations are are national formations, but they align in many spe- respects doctrinally with what the British are are doing. So before the First World War, Australian and Canadian formations are sent copies of the British Army's kind of capstone pamphlets and manuals, um, and this is really an attempt to inculcate a form of interoperability. But you also get the secondment um, of British officers to Duntrean, for example, to Kingston in Canada. You also get the, the sending over of Australian officers to attend Staff College at Camberley. So there are these kind of international um, links being built up across the the empire effectively um, to try and ensure that when the next conflict comes and Britain has to call on its empire to provide forces, that there is a degree of compatibility that exists there. Now, the way that the the fact that Australia has um, quite limited experience in terms of um, major conflict, you see that a number of British officers are initially put in charge of um, Dominion formations, and this does cause a fair amount of friction. You know, there's a feeling of wanting Australian or Canadian officers to be in charge of Canadian or Australian formations. So in the middle of of, of a total war, you have that grappling and that need to officer these um, Dominion formations with Dominion officers. And so I, I think that's really interesting. And the British kind of step away from that role. They have staff officers that are trained British staff officers embedded in those Commonwealth or Dominion staffs. But that actually, this is a a transitional period. And I think it's interesting that that is occurring whilst a total war is going on as well. So I think it's there are there are many angles to, to go down or to approach this from. But that desire for interoperability in the first instance is why you have British officers um, commanding these formations. And as experience and expertise grows, you then get the handing over to Australian, Canadian, New Zealand um, officers as the war goes on.
1: You write in the book that the success and learning by the British Army was due to its continuity of its pre-war ethos. Given the huge expansion of the army in the Great War, and in particularly the officer corps how do you explain this continuity
0: so i, I explain it in um a, f- a few ways really um probably i i'd like to focus on maybe three um the first really is that um pre-war doctrine in the form of um field service regulations remains in force throughout the conflict you know although it's supplemented With pamphlets in order to reflect the changing character of the conflict and the new tactics and techniques that are coming out of it, is that this is still the go to doctrine and this is pushed out to all formations and theatres of operations. And so it's very much, um, you know, a a way of integrating newcomers into the organisation. So, for example, the Australian Imperial Force, as I mentioned works to field service regulations. And I think that is a a really important form of integration. The second is that there's continuity at the very highest levels of command in the British Army. These are largely regular professional officers um, who've been brought up in that tradition. And there is very much a glass ceiling for officers who are perhaps part of the territorial force or the reservists or even the volunteers. So it's those professional commanders that remain at the very top of the organisation. And I would suggest that that conveys a degree of continuity as they have been inculcated and brought up in that particular pre-war culture. And then finally, and again, you know, it comes back down to this idea of of socialising and socialisation, is that when you have newcomers and new formations established is that they're often appended or attached to longer serving um regiments and formations so you get that transfer of of knowledge of of know-how and best practice but you also um you know get that sense of of, of an imbuing of that pre-war culture in these, these um, new formations. Um, and that's used also in, in training schools, conferences, um, you know, attachment and succumbment schemes. So that way of just passing that pre-existing knowledge and culture along um, is very much rooted in, in the British Army's way of doing things.
1: So what do you attribute the prevalence until recently of the negative views of the British Army in the Great War that the idea that the army was hindbound and ultra-conservative in its approaches towards learning and new tactics and new strategy.
0: Yeah, I mean it's 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 a a long-standing idea, and and I think that is still very much in in the public mind as well. And I think we perhaps think about the British Army in the First World War in this way because, you know, one cannot. Um, ignore the the scale of the casualties that occur on the Western Front, particularly in campaigns such as as the Somme and Passchendaele, and this perception that the same tactics were just employed over and over again. Now, um, I do not seek at all in in my book to to whitewash or play down um, the the tragedy um, of those operations. I myself have family members who were killed in the First World War. Um, I think what, what I was trying to do was not to um, play down that angle, but was to to think about this organisation in, in different ways and using different approaches and lenses to, you know, to really kind of interrogate what's the culture, what's the mentality behind these operations, but also what else is going on here in terms of, you know, looking outside of the organisation for expertise and knowledge and best practice but it is um, an incredibly difficult idea to to move past. And Professor David Reynolds, for example, has has highlighted this incredibly eloquently when he talks about how you know the terms like the learning curve stick in people's throats in Britain because the learning curve is is greased with the blood of of so many British and uh, Empire soldiers. Um, and I think that is something that's really, really hard to, to move past. But what I try to do with the book is to look at this institution as just that, as an institution that is grappling with, um, modern day challenges, unprecedented change and trying to understand how and why it approached the conflict and, and the way it approached it really. So it's it's a difficult thing to, to argue against, and there are certainly individuals in the army, as I've mentioned, who were overpromoted, who um, were simply trying to, I think, learn in the way that best made sense to them, but that often had um, tragic consequences.
1: If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be?
0: Oh, just one. That's really hard. Um, So probably that innovation and learning are as much about failure as they are about success. And I think that that's a particularly salutary takeaway for military organisations that are undergoing transformation programmes right now. Um, I think that there's a an assumption that innovation is cheap and that it's quick um, and that it doesn't take um, much time or resource. And my work on a historic military has shown the absolute opposite, is that innovation is requires commanders in particular, but also politicians to accept and acknowledge that there is going to be a large degree of failure and a number of dead ends um, before if ever a um a positive outcome is achieved and in a, a day and age of austerity or shrinking budgets, you know that's that's really hard to to front up to, but I would say that that is probably what i I would invite readers to take away and then they can certainly disagree with me um if if they if they choose to, but that actually when we think about learning you know just just thinking about it in as a messy, complex process, um, rather than something that is neat and simple. Um, If people take that away from my book, then then I'll be really happy.
1: With that observation, which I agree with, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Fox, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Coutillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Fox.
0: Thank you.